it's my pleasure to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Lewis Camhee, uh, founder of RLH Capital. Lewis, great to have you back. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So, Lewis, you are an investor in SPACs, and you know a great deal about them, special purpose acquisition companies. And I just want to uh, read from your latest letter. You said that SPACs are cyclical, and identifying where we are in the current cycle will help us understand the path forward. Low interest rates, easy access to capital, and increasing investor demand for venture capital type assets created the perfect environment for SPACs. Uh, that was probably late 2020, early 2021. I know you set up the fund in 2021, and we did our first interview uh, about a year ago in, you know, in the early summer of 2022. Where have SPACs gone since then? And sort of just paint us a picture, please. Sure. So when I talked about the cyclicality, SPACs were very in vogue, very popular. This you know easy, easy money conditions, the growth of venture capital, this whole idea that I want to own electric vehicles and flying cars, you know, all these deals are really well received. Uh, pipe capital is ample. That bubble is well beyond us. And I just want to point out, and I think we started talking about it last time, that the bubble deflating is obviously not a SPAC phenomenon. It's a, you know, speculative phenomenon, right? That you're no longer seeing IPOs from electric vehicle and LIDAR companies and, uh, you know, plenty of companies, whether they came out via SPAC or via IPO or direct listing, had their their challenges, at least from a valuation front. So the last I was listening to our interview that earlier from last time, and at the time there were 500 SPACs seeking targets. And since then over 200 SPACs have liquidated. So it just goes to show you that it's gotten a lot harder. And one of the things we talked about was a lot of the sponsors back then candidly didn't have the skill set to be a good SPAC sponsor. And to me, that skill set is defined as having proprietary access to deal flow and capital. And so you know, bankers were making their fees. They were issuing SPACs to anyone that could raise the sponsor capital. As we look now, we're still kind of getting away from where we were. The number of SPACs are shrinking. The IPO market is starting to rumble a little bit. And we saw Aries just bring their second vehicle. Nice to see a $500 million SPAC issuance. But right now, there's just a lot of doubt, as there should be. And we are just now starting to see some interesting deals that are EBITDA and cash flow positive and just you know, deals that you can value on their fundamental merits, dare I say the F word, rather than, you know, the, the 2030 uh, forecast. And so we're just now starting to the point where some of these deals could be interesting to look at. Whereas before, you know, I would read some of these investor presentations and say, I really hope that works. That will make my life easier. That is really cool, but I'm not going to risk mine and my investor's capital, uh, you know, to, to pursue that investment. And so what you're seeing now, I would say the way I would frame it in finance terms is a lot of the optionality for the time being of a SPAC is, is dead. And so what investors like me are looking for is just what's the yield? And if I can get yield with that optionality that I'll value at zero today, but maybe I get lucky, you know, that, that's really how I'm treating it. And so I'm describing the strategy as this is fixed income plus plus. Right. You invest in SPACs in a way that when most people think of SPACs, they do not think about what you do. And so I just want to clarify. So IPO is an initial public offering. I have a shoe company. I'm going to go take it public. Basically, a banker issue, issues my shares and then it, it starts trading. It's a lot more complicated than that. A SPAC is more complicated where there's an IPO if it is first with a blank check company, special purpose acquisition company, with a plan to do a reverse merger with my company, a shoe company. So the IPO, it goes public first and then does a merger. 
Uh, SPACs typically priced at $10. And you know, so when people talk about SPACs, oh, that SPAC crashed. It went from $10 to $30 to $1. That, it became a de-SPAC. When you, a SPAC is the actual bond ticker where there's a floor pr pr price, after it changes its name and it changes its ticker, then it's the thing. When, when some people say, you know, I'm invested in this SPAC, it's trading at $3. It's probably not an actual SPAC. It probably was a SPAC that, uh, you know, t turned into a butterfly, probably a pretty bad butterfly. But right. The nomenclature is pretty important um, because I joke around that SPACs have a terrible PR program. When you turn on CNBC, they're bashing SPACs and they're really bashing D-SPACs. And it's funny when I hear from like my father, who's an investor in my fund saying, you know, I invest in the fund because of you. But I got to tell you, like another day and another negative comment about a SPAC on CNBC and I have to say like that, let's take a step back. That is not a, what they're talking about is a de-SPAC. And so, you know, candidly, they create a marketing hurdle for funds similar to mine where, you know, SPAC is a dirty four letter word and maybe, you know, some investors lost money investing in one of those. And, you know, it, it really sometimes takes a lot of time and patience to get in front of these potential investors and say, well, let me just explain to you what we're doing, what may be different from how you thought about SPACs circa 2020, 2021. But the way you described it is exactly right. The, the key is really that trust floor that I know that I can redeem and always get my money back if I don't like a deal. And, you know, the, the real hope and, you know, we're not there yet going back to the cycle question is there's supposed to be kind of a, a logical transition between kind of the SPAC ARB guys like myself and the fundamental guys such that when a sponsor does a deal and let's say there's $10 and 50 cents in trust at the time, it trades up to 11 because fundamental investors in that space say, you know what, this is a really interesting opportunity or when this company was private, I was following it, I want to own it. And then instead of redeeming, a guy like me can just sell in the open market, rinse and repeat. And when that happens, returns are higher, redemptions are lower, which we can touch on you know, a little later. And when redemptions are lower, you deliver more capital to the target. So that, that full cycle, uh, which is kind of self-fulfilling, kind of starts moving in the right direction when those dynamics happen, but we we are not there yet. Right. And the point you made earlier is SPACs are a dirty word be, uh, because a lot of companies, speculative companies funded by venture capital at a ridiculously high valuation, you know, my, my subjective terms, will go public via a SPAC and attract uh, ire. And it's, me too. I, you know, I, I have... Uh, been disapproving of these things, thinking they're overvalued. And in some cases, I've been you know stupid enough to short some of these things. But it's important to say that your point is, don't compare this, uh, you know, a uh, 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 speculative electric vehicle stock to the S&P, compare the electric vehicle SPAC to the same, a similar electric vehicle company that went public via an IPO. Guess what? They're both down 80%. It's the, it, the wrapper is not the problem. The problem is what's inside the wrapper. And I, I would agree with that. And look, there are a lot of ways to improve the wrapper. Like, I, I just want to be out there. Like, I, I like SPACs. I think it's a good product. I think it is far from perfect. It needs to evolve. Um, I want to see better alignment. I want to see sponsors, you know, either converting their promote into, you know, earn out via, you know, stock price triggers or locking themselves up for longer terms. So there's things that, and some of them are doing it. Um, so so that, that starts good. But when you just compare, like, when you use SPAC to describe this kind of, cohort that came public in 2021, I just don't think that's accurate. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting is, and, you know, we've both said it, like SPACs took a lot of venture capital and brought it public. And we can get into the debate of should VC companies be public. I actually think it's a really interesting debate because you're kind of making a decision on who should be and who shouldn't be allowed to invest in it. 
But, you know, one of the reasons it looks so bad, in my opinion, is because no one's focused on the private VC world. Completely agree. And so if you look at, you know, if you look at all the down rounds in venture capital, they're terrible. I mean, CNBC doesn't talk about them because they're just harder and the information, you know, sometimes is tighter kept because these are private companies, not public. But, you know, if you bought a good company with cash flow, whether it was, you know, a SPAC, a direct listing or whatnot, you know, it probably performed the same. And if you bought one that sold you on kind of the long-term dream, which again, a lot of these are really cool, innovative companies. I hope they get there because it'll make the world better, but just pretty difficult to, to put capital behind, particularly when we've had kind of this surge in interest rates over the past few quarters. Yeah. So venture capital is an area of finance I know the least about. So I, I mean, I'm not, don't I really know anything about it, but I have to say, looking at what they've produced, where are the good comp? Where are the companies where? Oh yeah, that company IPO'd or spacked in 2015, and it's up a ton. I mean, I'm struggling to, to to think of any. I mean, I just there's so many that are just down in the tubes. There's a couple, believe it or not. There's a couple of biotechs, and I always laugh because, as you saw in my prior letter, I'm kind of begging the spac sponsors to move away from the biotechs um, and more towards kind of the more mature companies. Um, but, you know, you've seen an energy company. There was one, the, the ticket was LFG. It was acquired for a premium above. So there's definitely been a handful, but, you know, you really have to do that analysis of, let me dig in, let me look at all these SPAC deals. Let me, you know, let me take away the ones that are not revenue producing or take away the ones that aren't, you know, cash flow positive. And as you keep digging in there, you'll, you'll probably see better and better and better. You know, one name that I've spoken about in the past, which unfortunately meets the VC characteristic is this company called Origin Materials. And I think it's super interesting. You know, the stock's five dollars. It obviously despacked to ten. So the return to investors has been terrible. But it's one of those where they've actually been hitting all of their, you know, non-financial um, guidance that they've provided. And it's pretty much a bet they're turning on their first facility, assuming it's on time sometime this month. And they're either going to make this carbon-negative plastic that they say they can make, or they won't. And if they do, it's a really interesting story. And if they don't, then you know, it's not such an interesting story. And so, you know, I, I do think there's going to be some opportunities there. The the interesting question, or actually the interesting question, but one of the challenges has been because of these high redemptions, you've seen a lot of these, you know, DSPACs kind of come public without enough capital to bridge themselves to profitability. And the market is really sophisticated, whether it's investors wanting to avoid that risk or investors wanting to be short that risk. And so you've seen a lot of companies candidly file for bankruptcy within 12 to 24 months of their DSPAC because, you know, they waive that minimum cash. Now, I don't think the result would have been any different per se if they stayed private, because we all know that the private market liquidity has dried up as well. But, you know, there's there's no question that one of the big issues here is how do you get from A to B and you didn't finance it, but you acted like you financed it. So you were spending and just hoping that you could raise later. Um, and that's been, you know, a big problem, again, not just for SPACs, but for kind of some of these earlier stage companies. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of a uh, Starry, S-C-R-Y, which Goldman Sachs, uh, I was actually, you know, just short it. And uh, Goldman Sachs said, oh yeah, it's trading, it's cheap. It's like only trading at 10 times 2027 20, EBITDA. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's bankrupt, it's, it has a Q ticker. That, that was a tough one for me because there was a nuance in those warrants where the warrants had to get restrike and they had to get restrike for two terms. So I was actually in those warrants for a brief period of time. and. We'll chalk it up to better lucky than good because I, you know, made a little PL and got out of the way. But you're exactly right. Like that is the exact business where this is a really interesting story, but you can quantify we need a lot of capital to get from where we are today to where we're we break even on a profitability standpoint. 
and the redemptions there were over 90%. And so you kind of set yourself up for failure or, or maybe you just you didn't bet on the right market cycle thinking that, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to take two steps forward and I'm able to raise more money. But, you know, the market already told you with those redemptions and I'm sure they tried to raise a bunch of pipe money along the way that, no, we're not ready to back you. And so I just, you know, I, I keep going back to, you know, a lot of these biotechs will have that same issue. And so if we can start seeing more, you know, the last time we talked about energy, and it's interesting because there's a couple of energy type assets um, that are in the DSPAC process now. And I think as we get, you know, more companies like that, you know, there's uh, ROC is, is one of them that's, you know, out there with an oil field services type company, you know, they're, they haven't closed yet. I think there's a lot of concern. They're below their min cash, but in this case, they're EBITDA generative, right? And so even if you waive them in cash, like, okay, maybe they can't pursue M&A or some other investments as quickly as they want to, but it is a self-sustaining entity that has the right capital, the right balance sheet. And I think you know, there's a lot of companies out there that just don't have the right balance sheet. Right. So you're saying some companies, if they were able to secure capital, they could invest in their business model and maybe grow and survive. I would say some companies, if the business model is not there, they it wouldn't have made a difference. I mean, Starry's business model was giving people internet for free, and right. uh, they had they had a you know total total addressable market uh, in in the investor deck, which is for me is, a, is always a red flag. Okay, but I, Lewis, I got to define a few terms uh, for the audience as well as just for myself. So trust is kind of the amount of money that's in the bank. How much gold is in the vault? So if it's trading for ten dollars, but they have ten dollars and fifty cents in trust. Let's just say, and it, you know, it, you have to vote for the deal in a year, so you have the option to redeem your thing for cash. So you ten dollars, you get ten dollars and fifty cents on a one-year basis. That's a five percent yield, and that's something that you fr frequently do, you know, at, at your fund. Uh, but or you could actually say, oh no, I want shares in a new company, which will have a you know a new ticker. So, but re redemption rates back in the good old bubble days, not good old, but uh, you know, a lot of people were asking for the shares and you were in the minority of asking for your money back. But now, I mean, you saw some of the redemption rates, like 95% of people want their money back. It's, that's a problem. Yeah, I mean, we launched, I would call it just after the bubble burst. I mean, to put it in perspective, I think this is kind of a funny fact. We launched the day after DWAC, which is the Trump SPAC deal happened because all of my investors who, you know, I, I rarely hear from them, but they all called me that day to say, are we in this thing? Because it went from $10 to $110. Um, so we were kind of already already beyond that. Um, so, but everything what you said is correct. Like most SPACs nowadays, they'll come out with between 1010 and 1020 in trust. They'll have, you know, something like 18 months, anywhere between 12 and 18 months of duration. And so, you know, when you're buying those units, which in the IPO, they sell units, which are the shares plus some warrants, um, you know, you can play that yield game, you can hold the warrants, you can sell the warrants when they start trading separately. And, and sorry, Lewis, a, a warrant, basically, not exactly, but basically, it's like a very long duration call option of five years, but it's dilutive. Yeah, well, I mean, look, you're, any warrant is dilutive, but it's with an 1150 strike price, if in theory, you're doing a deal at 10, you know, you're, you're, creating a path to raise money at uh, at 1150. Right right but yeah when you own a call option you own it against someone who's short the call option when you own a warrant you're you own it against the company who has to issue it to give you the shares. Correct. When you exercise that warrant the, the company issues you a share and you give the company money. Yeah. Got it. So when you own a unit you own part of the uh SPAC and then part of a warrant for the new thing or or no. 
Well, kind of. So let's let's talk about a specific deal that just priced because I think it was an interesting. Aries uh, just priced an IPO a couple of weeks ago, and it was interesting because Aries is obviously a really high profile, high quality sponsor. They decided that they still like the SPAC vehicle. They raised five hundred million dollars in an IPO. In that IPO, in that IPO, you were buying units, and each unit represented uh, one share of stock and one half of one warrant. And so, you know, you were able to, a few weeks later, actually yesterday, those units were splittable. And so you, if you participated or if you owned any of those units, you were now able to, you know, sell the warrants or sell the common, you know, any kind of permutation and combination. And so, you know, what was really interesting about that deal is, um, you know, so all of a sudden now, some of the deals that we've seen earlier this year were $50 million and $70 million and the paper was fine, but this is really the first time where facing all of these liquidations, there was an opportunity for people to put a lot of money to work. And the deal priced a little tighter than I would have expected. But again, I just think that shows you the, the market's demand for paper. Tighter meaning richer, higher value, lower meaning yield. The terms were less investor friendly and more sponsor friendly. Got it. But that's because there was a lot of investor demand. Exactly. So in this case, they put $10.10 in trust. And they have two years to get a deal done. Got it. And so we've got, when you have a SPAC, there's announcing a deal, there's completing a deal, and then there's uh, terminations, liquid, liquidating the deal. Yep. How many deals are getting done now? And what are the terms of the, the, that they're being done with? Well, all the deals themselves are, are pretty bespoke. But you know what's interesting to me is when you look at year to date, there have been 81 SPAC announcements deal announcements. So the notion that, you know, SPAC deals are dead, you know, the, the data points to the opposite. Now, some of these deals are still, you know, we're not kind of seeing all the deals that I'd like to see. And, and again, not to be overly redundant, but you just want to see deals of companies that you think can stand on their own two feet in a challenging capital markets environment that you don't need to come out and raise capital in the next 12 months, et cetera. So, we are seeing some of those, um, still not as many as I'd like, um, but you know there are still targets that are willing to engage with SPACs. Um, the IPO market, you know, has been a lot slower. So we've seen 15 IPOs year to date. Uh, most of them a little smaller. Uh, the and, and you read the letter, but starting to hear from more capital markets bankers that you know the I don't want to say the floodgates are opening, but there's more of a willingness, and I think when this Aries deal came and it priced tighter. So again, tighter meaning more friendly to the sponsor than to investors. Um, you know, investors realize that, or sponsors and bankers realize like we may have a window here where we can come out with more SPACs. And my hope is that, you know, we continue to see only the, what the guys I call tier one bringing paper because, you know, we have a perception issue. We have a lot of, or we had, I should say, a lot of SPAC sponsors that didn't have the, the tools to completing a successful DSPAC and, if we can kind of keep the sponsored universe more limited to guys that can get good deals done, I think the perception of quality will improve over time. Not, unfortunately, not a short-term solution, but nevertheless, I think it's pretty important. Yeah, and I think that perception is a problem because there. I mean, you said it in a very polite and generous way of a lot of SPAC, you know SPAC uh, uh, sponsors didn't have the tools to do a good deal. You know, the flip side of the coin, the rude way to say that is. They were, you know, incentivized to do a deal because they got paid if they got a deal done, and they didn't get paid if they didn't do a deal done. So they bought 
uh, you know, a crappy company that, and now the stock's at 50 cents. Sure. Well, you know, it really depends on how far back in the timeline you want to go, right? Is it a sponsor saw other sponsors getting rich and just said, I want to do this too. Is it a banker tapped you on the shoulder and said, Hey, I got your information from a friend of a friend. You should raise this back. You have, you either have the risk capital or access to it. And we have an investment banking division and we have a capital markets division and we will make sure you get this done. There's, there are a handful of banks out there that almost promise sponsors, like you won't have to liquidate. We'll find you something. We'll help you finance it. And then, you know, when, well, let's say when shit hits the fan, but you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. when shit hits the fan, you know, they're nowhere to be seen. And so I think that's been the frustrating part that a lot of sponsors think that they were conned into this product and, you know, that this wasn't my core competency, but XYZ Bank said like, no, you can do great here. And, you know, trying to bank disappears. And now you're like, well, I don't want to lose my risk capital. So what do I do? And unfortunately, you know, you're right that the incentives are to do any deal versus no deal, but to some extent, you know, you've kind of walked these guys off the plank and now that your only option is to jump. Right. And that, that's a more thoughtful way of thinking about it. Uh, so when you said I, over 50 deals were done or 80 deals, how many SPAC deals? 81 deal announcements here today. 81 deal announcements, not completions. And it's interesting announcements deals this date. And so some of those are perhaps uh, SPAC sponsors incentivized that because they have to find a deal otherwise, they don't get paid. So what is the general quality of the deals that are being done? If, you know, I, I'll make the rough characterization that in 2021, you had either, you know, bad companies being valued at rich prices or mediocre to good companies being valued at ridiculously expensive prices. What are the quality of companies that are being, you know, uh, the quality of deals as well as their valuations? You know, the valuations are, are a little more reasonable. So let's touch on disclosure for a second. Um, you know, the SEC came out and basically said, we are going to get change the rules for SPACs. Now, the rules were due in April, um, and here we are in June with no rules. Um, and so one of the debate points was on disclosing projections, which I think we spoke about in the past. And there's this weird dynamic where in an IPO, you are not allowed to disclose projections in your documents. But in a merger, you are. And so since a SPAC is considered a merger, you were able to give projections and, you know, people, you know, we talked about these forecasts and these 2030 projections, et cetera. Um, so now you're getting a lot less. And so maybe you'll get, you know, the 2023 number um, or, you know, you'll usually get by now the 2022 number. So when we think about valuation, it's harder to, you know, look more forward looking. Um, in terms of the sponsor, you know, the deal quality, it's really all over the place. Um, you know, we've seen a couple that are more, let's call it like energy and oil field services that are, you know, real businesses with real cash flow. But, you know, ironically, when we were talking a few months back, energy was really hot. Now we've seen energy cool off at least yep. for the time being. Um, and so we'll see how those deals are, are received. Um, still your handful of biotechs. And, you know, look, it's, I'm not a biotech guy. I can't really tell you much about the market, but it just feels like for some of those companies, their options are limited on the private side and, you know, VC markets will be challenged. So they're almost being forced to evaluate this. So I would say that the, I don't want to say that they're lower quality opportunities per se, but the companies that I would like to see that are easier to value, that are, you know, more tangible, they're still the minority of deals, but growing in proportion. And look, there's been a couple of them that came out and they've been, you know, pretty well received. Like there's uh United Homes Group is a home builder, real company, real EBITDA, 
raised a real pipe. I'm just checking right now. The stock's trading at eleven dollars. Um, so that's that's higher than ten. And pipe is a public investment in private equity, or right. no, private investment in public equity. Yes. Yes. Okay. Got it. So you know, it, it's just nice to see that you know. Wait a second. If you bring a company that has a real business with real profitability and a growth path, and you know, a real manager team, like it can still be decently received. Um, and you know, we'll we'll see if that's the case. We saw, you know, earlier this week, you know, we saw a, a metals deal for a copper mine, and we saw a power deal close, and those are trading okay, and they were able to raise real money. And so, you know, there's clearly still opportunity. It's just we're the pendulum's moving slower than I would prefer. Maybe that's the, the nice way to say it. Yeah, well, you're you're good at saying saying it the nice way. Um, so so most of what you invest in is SPAC arbitrage, treating SPACs as bonds, and then redeeming them. Maybe you know uh, doing some warrant stuff, and then maybe selling some call spreads against them or doing stuff like that. But you're not just to get the audience clear. You are not buying this home builder or this copper and then owning the actual stock after DSPACs, right? That is not your investment strategy. Right. No, that, that's totally right. I mean, look, for me, in a perfect world, I don't want to be redeeming. I want to be selling before at a premium to trust because, again, that's just good for the SPAC ecosystem. When, you know, when, when someone redeems, you know, if they think that's the right choice for them, that's fine and you're protecting your capital, but you're also, you know, that's $10 per share that's not going to the target. And, you know, when you, let's not think about it on a SPAC by SPAC basis, but when you think about SPAC as the product, if SPACs don't deliver any capital to the target, they kind of defeat their purpose. So for me in a perfect world, I'm buying something that has, I'm buying something at 10 with 10.50 in trust and a deal is announced and I can sell it at 10.75 because the, you know, the fundamental guy comes in and says, this is a good asset, I wanna own it. Um, and then just to clarify a couple of things because you know, this is where the world has changed quite a bit since we last spoke 10 months ago. So the trust number isn't static. When I mentioned that, you know, Aries launched their IPO and they came out with 1010 and trust, that 1010 and trust now gets invested in a money market fund, which is earning, you know, call it 5% based on today. Whereas when we spoke, it was like 1%. Right. And so, you know, when you look at something like, again, we're, we're picking on Aries, and I think Aries is a great sponsor, but when, when you look at something like an Aries, you'll say, okay, they have two years to do a deal. If I pencil forward at 5%, that means at the end of two years, they're going to actually have 11-11 in trust, right? And so I can go out there right now and buy this thing and know that, you know, if this thing liquidates in two years, I make 5%. And that's really not the worst outcome in the world. And so, you know, if you can participate in some of these IPOs, and so, you know, that's today with, you know, there's numbers I quoted with the common trading at 1014. You know, if you were able to buy the units at $10 at the IPO, which, you know, we all know it's hard to get IPO allocations, but the yields were, you know, that much higher and you got that warrant optionality. So that that's a really big difference between now and then that you have this kind of interest rate kicker. Now, the flip side is for guys like me that run funds with a little bit of margin, your cost of margin is also quite a bit higher now, too. Um, the other thing is, and we spoke about it last time about writing options, the option market for SPACs has been dead for quite some time. There's just not a lot of volatility. So for, for options to be interesting to market participants, you need to have price range. You need to have that occasional $10 stock that jumps to 13 or whatnot. And so, you know, we have not been active uh, too much with options. With warrants, you know, it's funny when I think back to April of 2022, and I was looking at the warrants thinking, 
you know, warrants have gotten back to the levels where I was buying them in 2015 and 2016, and you could pencil out really nice returns because they were priced at 40 cents and not, you know, $2 as they were in 2020. And so, you know, the fund dabbled a little bit there. And for those of you who've been tracking the warrant market, SPAC warrants were down like 95% um, last year. The, you know, the market didn't care and you saw tier one sponsors liquidate. So we're, we're doing very little on the warrant side. Um, in fact, this month or maybe last month, I made my first warrant purchase in, I want to say almost a year. Um, and keeping those positions really small and they have to be super asymmetric and kind of one of those situations where I'll be happy to kick myself for not buying more if it works out. But you do get the warrant quote for free when you buy the unit, right? So are you selling those? Yeah, well, you know, it's price dependent, right? You know, something, again, if you meet the criteria of you're a tier one sponsor in my book because you have a history of proprietary deal flow capital and if your warrants are cheap, then sure, maybe that's worth a flyer. But if your warrants get expensive, you know, that's harder. You know, when you look at, so for me, I'm, I look at a lot of, you know, the current trading statistics and yeah. you look at the average warrant for a deal that's closed, it's something like 20 cents. And so, and to give perspective, like that number was a few dollars, you know, years ago. And so if I'm buying the average warrant at, you know, 10 cents, and I think there's a 50% probability of them doing a deal, it's just, it's not, you know, that's, That'd be break even. These are pre-deal warrants. No, these are post-deal close warrants. Oh, but but that but that will change uh, a ton based on the underlying. So if the if it's if it's struck at ten dollars, the strike price is ten dollars, and the underlying is trading at two dollars, it makes sense why it's at ten cents. Right, but if you look at some of the recent deals that have closed, so let's look at the last. Let's have a recency bias. If you look at the last forty deals to have closed the average warrant is trading at 50 cents. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to be overly simplistic, if we assume that that there's a 50% probability of a SPAC closing a deal. So now if I buy you at 25 cents and there's a 50% chance of you going to 50, that's break even. And so I need to buy quality warrants at below 25 cents. And then I have to account for kind of the volatility and lack of predictability relative to the core strategy. Um, and so it, it just becomes harder. Now, could there be a, a special situation that makes it interesting? Like, sure. Um, and, you know, there's there's deals out there where, you know, there's an interesting deal and they're EBITDA profitable. And if it closes, then, you know, there's a lot of upside to the warrants or rights. So I'll give you an example. We spoke about, uh, or I mentioned the SPAC, ROC Energy, the ticker is ROC. And it's funny because I actually, before they even announced a deal or whatnot, I mentioned it on the, the last podcast 10 months ago. And, you know, you saw these rights go from $0.05 cents to $0.35. Cents. And now the funny thing, though, or it's really funny thing, but the observation is they went to $0.35 cents on their deal announcement, which was in February, and they're at $0.35 cents today. So you have to be pretty tactical because you may have said, okay, these rights convert into Ten, uh, one tenth of a share. So 10 rights, one share. So 35 cents means it's pricing the shares at 350. Now the shares right now. 625. Right. And this is a real interesting scenario because this deal is kind of in limbo. They held their, they had two votes at the same time last week, one to extend to give them more time. 
and the other for the deal. Both passed. So if you believe that, you know, with the stock trading at 624, that represents fair value, then these warrant these rights should go to 62 cents. If you think for some reason the deal is not going to close, the comma is going back to, I think this 1056 in trust. Um, they just contribute four cents or 1060 in trust, and those rights are going to zero. So this case, you know, I did a good job of kind of shooting myself in the foot by bringing up something a little more complex. But it just goes to show you that there is opportunity to make money kind of in the warrant and rights, but the volatility is just a lot harder. And the reason, going back to your point full circle, the reason I own these rights was because I had bought the units in the IPO and just candidly, the rights got so cheap. It's like, well, why am I going to sell these at five cents? And so it cuts both ways. But, you know, it's the, it's the reason why for me, and, and there's some strategies that take on more risk, but I, I like to keep the warrants and rights to be just a much smaller part of the portfolio so that one, the volatility doesn't overly distract me personally. And two, you know, I don't want to sit there and tell an investor that we made or lost a lot of money because of kind of this riskier asset class when my strategy is more predicated on the, the steady eddy arbitrage returns of SPACs. Sorry to interrupt. Wanted to let you know about BlockWorks' upcoming crypto event, Permissionless 2. This ultimate DeFi gathering will be taking place in Austin on the 11th to the 13th of September 2023. It will feature the very best discussions on ZK tech, rollups, account abstraction, MEV, and much, much more. All the big hitters in crypto are going to be there. So if you're into crypto, you need to be there too. To get a 20% discount to a full three-day pass to Permissionless 2, click the link in the description and use code GUIDANCE20. That's GUIDANCE20. Thanks. Let's get back to the episode. Right. And warrants are only exercisable on a certain date. And amateurs, such as, let's just say, like myself, can be confused upon when it can actually be exercised. Something could say it's, oh, it's exercisable starting on August 15th, but it's only exercisable given conditions A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And then you call the broker and they're like, I just work here. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely uh, an information asymmetry, but Generally speaking, for a deal after, so the deal has to close, that's part one. And then the warrants need to be registered, usually in an S1 filing. Registered, exactly. That's um, it. Yeah. The warrant strike price that you mentioned is usually 1150. So if the stock is yep. below 1150, you're not going to want to exercise it anyway. Uh, most of them have a provision where if it's above $18, $18 yeah. which again, this is pretty rare these days, but you can be forced to exercise it again. But it wasn't rare during the squeeze days of summer 2022 when so many people redeemed that the actual float was like ridiculously small. There are only, you know, a few thousand shares that were public. Yeah. And there were two SPACs that really took advantage of that. They like, deliberately or coincidentally waited long enough for, you know, their warrants to be redeemable or force redeemable. And they registered the warrants in the pipe at the same time. And that selling pressure from the pipe took the stock back down below 1150 and all of the warrants for those two SPACs expired worthless. One of them, I think, is in a lawsuit right now. Was one of them FaZe? One of them was Forge and one of them was um, Getty. Okay, yeah, I know Getty. Uh, and, yeah, Forge had a huge squeeze. Getty had a squeeze. Pagaya had a squeeze. Pagaya, but I think Pagaya's warrants are still in place. You know, I, I think what's... Yeah, Pagaya's warrants are still in place. But, you know, what's really interesting to me about these, you know, conceptually is if the fiduciary duty is only to the equity holders, then kind of canceling out your warrants and taking on no dilution is a positive. 
But if you have any fiduciary duty, and this is a lawyer question, not for me, but if you have any fiduciary duty to the warrant holders, now there's some real questions. Yeah. And let's say hypothetically, you're someone who was short the stock and along the warrants and trying to play an arbitrage, you get totally screwed there. Yeah. And it's funny, like I, um, I tweeted kind of about Getty when that whole thing was going on and shame on me because I didn't short a single warrant. Um, but I, I posted more as like a, a buyer beware notice. And, you know, it, it, it played out exactly as I thought. And what was strange about Getty and, you know, the, the, the dynamic here, and I think this is the base of the lawsuit is the sponsor took their warrants and converted them into equity before all this happened. And so, you know, I guess there's an argument that it's not, right. warrants. I don't know if it's not legal per se, but it's maybe it's not ethical or not right that the sponsor warrants are treated different than the public warrants. But, you know, that's, um, that'll be something for the, the lawyers to deal with. I, I think what's really important though, for SPACs in general is, you know, you just have to read, you have to kind of take the time to read and, I know that's discouraging. Maybe if you're buying a thousand dollars worth of say, is it worth spending all this time reading? But there's just a lot of nuance here that that matters. And you know, if you if you catch it, you can make some money off of it. And more importantly, maybe you can save yourself some money. Right. And I just want to say a point of let's say this, this the stock is trading at eighteen dollars, and again, the, the cap is normally at eighteen dollars. It's you can. Uh, the the warrant has a strike price of eleven dollars and fifty cents. So you have the right, but not the obligation to buy at eleven dollars and fifty cents. So you, that the intrinsic value of that would be uh, six dollars, uh, five dollars and fifty cents, right? Six fifty. Six dollars. Yeah, there we go. Six dollars and fifty cents. Uh, but the warrant's trading at three dollars. So you said, "Oh my God, this is a steal." But here's the thing: it's only exercisable up until it's only exercisable starting on a date. If it's not exercisable, you're actually short a put option up until the date it becomes exercisable because it could go from $18 to $10 and you're screwed. Yeah. I mean, if you want to oversimplify, if you're thinking about buying a warrant before you buy it, call your broker and ask them if I could, if I buy this today, can I exercise it today and see what they say? And you may not even get a straight answer. And candidly, if, if you think time is of the essence and you can't get a straight answer, you may not want to put on the trade anyway, because things can just, change that quickly. But, you know, some of the warrants, you know, they actually have the right, they can be forced called at a lower price, but into equity. So, you know, if you look at, um, Oh, right. Uh, uh, what's that called? Cashless expiration, cashless. Yeah. Exercise? So like, if you look at and I only mentioned this one cause I, I tweeted about it recently. There's a, a D-SPAC called Livewire, which was a spin out of Harley Davidson. It's their uh, electric bike division. Oh, and so they have a provision that says if the stock trades above 10 for 20 days in a 30 day period, we can, you know, force a cashless exercise for something like 0.25 shares of, I forget the exact ratio of stock. Now the warrants are trading at 55 cents. And so if you, you know, if you force that exchange and kind of value them on paper at 250, you know, people will be pretty happy so that, you know, that's a, you know, that's a, an instance of a positive outcome. But again, you, you need to actually flip through the warrant documents to know like this exists. Definitely. And as folks can tell, this is not only complicated, but it takes a lot of work to work through different permutations and to be right. And, you know, it makes sense that it's a full-time job. Like if you're, you know, if you're paying someone to manage your money and they're like, oh, I'm long Apple instead of Microsoft, like that's not that hard, you know, but uh, like, this is pretty hard. <laughs> I mean, look, there's... Uh, you really have to be in the weeds. So I'll give you an example. When yeah. 
That's what Earnings I'm season for SPACs is when all of the quarterly or annual statements come out, right? The 10 Qs, the 10 Ks. And I I flip through all of them and you know, I sit down at my desk for hours with a glass of wine after I put my kids to bed. Um, it's, it's kind of a lonely job, but I also feel like it's necessary. And you find something like there's a SPAC called BWC, Blue Whale Acquisition. Blue Whale Acquisition, for whatever reason, kept all of their trust proceeds in actual cash. So earned no interest. And all of a sudden in their 10Q, there was one line in there that said, as of 331, we moved all of our cash into an interest-bearing account. So again, when you think about these things as bonds or yield instruments, before you know investors were pricing this, saying like, okay, I want, I think this should be priced at a five percent yield to maturity, and I'm assuming that the trust account is static, and so that implies, you know, it was trading at it looks like the low 990s. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you find this fact, and then the next morning, my first order was to try to buy this, and I even had people ask me, like, why are you buying this? This is a bad buy. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, buying it because unless the sponsor made a mistake or lied, like, everything has changed now. And so it's up 4%. Yeah, no. Well, it's, it's up even less than that, but it's up about 2%. But 2% in my world in a you know one-month period, like, the SPAC arbitrage or arbitrage world in general is all about annualized yields, right? So mm-hmm. 2% in a month, if you even forget about compounding for a second, is... 24% in a year. Yeah. So if I could, if I just found an investment that made me 24% in a year on an annualized terms with no risk, right? Because it goes back to you're buying it below trust and everything. How much is that, in the trust for Blue Whale? Um, I think Blue Whale is 10. No, I'm not going to guess. I'm just going to tell you. Yeah. Um, it was $10 as of Q4. And all of a sudden they, it was 10.04 as of Q1. And that's what got me. You know, I have a tracker, as a lot of you know guys that cover SPACs do, and it's like, this isn't supposed to go up. It's supposed to be 10. And so you start digging in and you say, okay, well, now this makes, you know, this makes no sense, right? If you're in cash with no interest, how do you have interest income? And all of a sudden you, you dig in to try to see what happened and you see, well, now they're earning interest. And so, you know, it's just an example of how in this world where you just have to read the fine print. Are there any deals that you... I think actually are legit deals like, oh, wow. Like, I'm not going to say the next Amazon is going to SPAC, but let's just say, uh, I don't know, a a lift, a a lift is going to go public. I don't know if I knew that. Again, for me, my bar is lower. I just want to see, you know, normal financials, good profitability. Um, I'll give you a a good example and full disclosure, we're, we're along this, but... Uh, there's a SPAC called GSRM, GSR2 Meteora, and they are merging with a, a Bitcoin ATM business. And I think this is super interesting because the Bitcoin ATM business has been doing about $40 million of EBITDA a year. It's not kind of a hockey stick. That's literally what it's been at. And so, you know, you can kind of pencil out, okay, this is $40 million plus or minus. You can sit there, be fundamental. Does it will it grow? Will it not grow? What are they going to do with their cash that they generate? Um, and you know, the big question is for something like this is will the SEC approve it? Because we know mm-hmm. everything going on with the SEC and crypto lately. And you know, you can make the case that no, there's no way because it's crypto related, or you can make the case that you know what, this isn't an exchange. They don't have customer accounts. All the issues that we saw with some of the other um, SPACs that ultimately. Uh, liquidated because they couldn't get their deals closed. 
And we actually just saw a few weeks ago a crypto-related SPAC get done. So if you think this gets done, one, I think it's interesting because, again, I'm just you know, really focused on profitable businesses. And two, if you want to go a step further, you know, the warrants here, are, I'm looking right now, are eight cents. And I just think that if you get a deal done that has positive EBITDA and the perception of, you know, crypto exposure and what that does to the volatility of the option, like that could be really interesting. Um, and, you know, there's some other deals we're looking at where the target is actually funding the SPAC. And so you see good alignment in terms of, you know, they probably want to get this deal done because otherwise that target is wasting money. Um, and so, and we've seen a couple of energy deals that I think are pretty interesting. Uh, but, you know, I would encourage, you know, if you're looking at these deals and you want to be fundamental, you really need to filter for the ones with, you know, positive EBITDA and cash flow. And, you know, even if it's something a little more, let's call it futuristic, probably the wrong term, but more, you know, let's call it more growthy, like just make sure that they have the balance sheet to kind of get from where they are today to where they need to be. That's good advice. And I'd also say like, I, you know, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett said that sometimes they can pick up a company's, you know, annual report and they, they read it for 50 seconds and they say, oh, next, because there's a red flag. For me, that's been very hard with public companies, but with SPACs, it's actually pretty easy, like to see some red flags. So like, if you see a red flag, just move on to the next one. Yeah, look, and this one, just to be clear, I, I know I've been harping on cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. And I like, like most other investors say that, but there have been plenty of SPACs with cash flow that have just massively underperformed as well. So that's definitely not. But like, can you give me an example? Like, I, I'm interested in that. Paysafe. Hmm. Paysafe was a payments company. It was taken public through Bill Foley's SPAC. Um, I joke around that it is one of the, you know, one of the best like peak time slide deck in that um, it has like the, the Foley plan and the Foley upside case and, Bill Foley is a great investor. Like I've had a lot of respect for the guy and his other SPAC is doing all right by SPAC terms. But, you know, this, this deal has obviously been just a disaster. They had to, uh, you know, execute a, a huge reverse split. And, you know, they burned a lot of institutional investors too because they went out there, they raised a big pipe. You know, again, Bill Foley was behind FNF, is the country's largest title insurance company. He's behind FIS, another big payments company. So he had all the credentials and pedigree and, you know, this thing was a high flyer. I remember I owned warrants in this. I owned warrants in Paysafe, you know, when they announced the deal. And at one point, the warrants were trading for $6. The stock today is trading at 11, but that's after a, a one for 12 or a stock split. So, you know, this is, I would call Paysafe your example of when you take a company that's just levered up a lot and you miss numbers, right? It gets punished. Um, just, I don't want to say even disproportionately, but, you know, the equity is more at risk. And, you know, there's yeah. a new management team there. I don't follow it as closely anymore because, again, it's just a little different from what we're doing. But in my old life, I was a, a fintech and payments analyst. And so, you know, I think in this case, just an example of you had a high quality sponsor, you had a good business, um, Blackstone and another private equity firms were the legacy owners. So on paper, CBC is the other one. So on paper, you know, this deal checked all the boxes. And yet, if you invested, you know, you lost a lot of money. So, yeah. So, so as you say, most SPAC deals uh, start, started at $10, but I'm going back to October 2020 and it says it was at $120. That's because, as you say, they did a reverse split. So, uh, you get 12 units 
for for one. Um, well, for every for every twelve you had, it was oh, you, you get one. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so that is now down ninety five percent from peak, and probably about eighty percent down, ninety percent down from from its original IPO. So what happened? I mean, did it was a profitable company? What happened? And I, I don't know anything about the company. It's still a profitable company, and you know they they've just been missing numbers. Their forecasts were a little too. Um, a little too aggressive and I was looking at this the other day because I know this is a name that people still uh, really focus on um, and so you know if you just look at the EBITDA forecast which forgive me because I'm pulling them up right now but you know the EBITDA forecast in November 2021 were for this company to do 680 million dollars in 2023 as of now that's been reduced to 453 so you know you million from 681 to 453 million. But the market cap is 684 million. So it tells me there, there should be a lot of problems in EBITDA. There's a lot of uh, interest, taxes, uh, depreciation, and amortization. And well, also a lot of debt. Okay. So interest. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm pulling it up right now. So there's 2.64 billion of debt. Yeah. So 2.6. Four on four fifty, you know, is you know, it's uh, it's it's healthily levered now. You know, as we've seen in situations like this, when you're just under six times levered, if they write the ship, you know, there'll be an opportunity to create a lot of value in the equity, you know, your traditional private equity model. But um, again, I, no no view on on the company from here, but just more making the point that when you look at or when I look at what's everything I want to see in a spec, this had it all and still, you know. You really had to underwrite their forecasts and, you know, realize, you know, maybe this, maybe things are a little they're painting too rosy of a picture. Got it. Uh, so I'll just look at Pagaya because, damn, Pagaya is at a dollar twenty-two cents. Although it's AI, so maybe that it will have a comeback. Well, you know, people are there are there AI, AI tags? Could this start a new bubble? Well, it's funny you say that. There was an LOI announced last night. Letter of intent. A letter of intent first back, and I'm going to read it to you because oh, I think you'll get a kick out of it. Too too many spack tickers these days, but um, I believe it. Although, are, would they be? Are there fewer than there were a year ago? Oh yeah, I have a lot fewer. AI. Here we go. Um, this company is a maker of enterprise grade natural language code generator for machine learning and data management platforms. It utilizes generative artificial intelligence AI techniques to automate AI codes, development, and scaling to other technology stacks. Yeah. So that's AI, cool. machine learning. What's the ticker? It's a, it's a, it's a, it doesn't even have a ticker yet. It does not exist. Well, the, the SPAC doing this deal is IGTA, Inception Growth. Oh, okay. So the, it already um, they, so they, they, a deal. The SPAC already exists. LOI last night. Um, sometimes this happens where these SPACs announced their letter of intent, binding or non-binding, in this case, binding. I honestly don't understand why they do that. In my opinion, they should wait until they're at the definitive agreement stage. That's when the, the contract is actually signed. Um, but nevertheless, you know, they announced this and look, this could be a great target. I, I don't know a lot about it. I don't know a ton about the AI space, except I think we've all used chat GPT and whatnot. But you know, it's always fun when the, the buzzwords come out, but hopefully there is there is something here. Yeah, and AI, it's just it's really hard for me to understand what the businesses are. You know, I mean, if it's okay, you're selling chips, 
you're buying the materials for a dollar you're selling them for two that's like sure. guess you can really understand but yeah i mean i really don't understand it computer science really at all um so no, i'm sure too. i won't understand this company and i'm sure a lot of people don't understand this company yeah look and the flip side is right this is why the deal decks are so important because i i read this paragraph and i see some buzzwords i see ai i say cool interesting you know i'm not smart enough to know what this target is and i'll look forward to looking at the deal deck i mean one of the nice things for me is even if it's not an investable opportunity, I look at every deal deck and you just see a lot of interesting things. And like I said in the beginning, you, you hope they work out because a lot of them would make your life better, be cooler, be an interesting experience. But some of them, and again, this isn't a comment on uh, this back because I just don't know enough, but some of them are just too hard to invest behind at this stage. Yeah. Agile Algo, the underlying company, I have no idea. It says that they'll uh, existing equity holders will roll 100% of their equity into the combined public company. Is that normal? Don't they normally keep a lot of it themselves? No, that's that's pretty standard. Um, you know, again, in 2020, in the 2020 world where you could raise a huge pipe, maybe some of them would say like, okay, we'll take some chips off the table. But in this day and age where it's just so hard to raise capital, you, you want to keep all the capital to the business. You know, we talk about alignment. I think that's a good sign of alignment. If you told me that Hey, all the existing investors are cashing out. I would say, like, it's just that doesn't feel doesn't feel like where I want to risk my chips. So yeah. that part standard. You would hope in a deal like this that they could raise some outside capital. My intuition is that a company that does AI and machine learning probably isn't profitable. I mean, we saw that Microsoft Microsoft had to invest ten billion into OpenAI or something. Now, obviously, scale there is is night and day different. I'm assuming from here. But again, want to see some third-party capital, want to see a path from where they're going today to profitability. Um, so you know, your interest gets peaked, it's trading up five cents, which again, in the, in the good old days, it would trade up $5, but for today, five cents is fine. Yeah. And now we just wait and hopefully get some, uh, some more information. And uh, because you're having stocks, but particularly you know, speculative technology stocks, or even just te technology stocks, uh, are going up. Some people saying it's a new bull market. I mean, you know, NVIDIA is up a gazillion percent just this year. Are you seeing the actual SPAC units go up, not the DSPACs, but the SPAC units going up in anticipation of, oh, when this DSPACs will be worth more? Well, just to break that down. So prior to announcing a deal, you're not seeing anything. Um, Whereas in 2020, you were. Right. So in 2020, the average SPAC traded at $11. So Which $10 in trust. And we're trading at $14. Traded at 11 So it was a $10 IPO, $11, just the common now, not the unit, $11 waiting for the deal and 14 at announcement. Because I remember yeah. thinking like, this is kind of crazy that you're $3 up, $1 down. That's a and great this is all deal. SPAC, not DSPAC. So the floor was $10. Yeah. Yeah. And, but listen, at the same time as if you, at one point, Deutsche Bank was giving like 10 times leverage on SPACs, right? So if you were levered up 10 times at 11 and they went to 10, like you're, you're done. Um, when you, so phase two, when they announce a deal, you're seeing some trade okay, but there's usually a bit of skepticism until kind of the ultimate deal close. And so like UHG, which I, I mentioned a few minutes ago, it was trading at around trust value and then the deal closed and it had a little short squeeze moment. And, you know, now it's hanging at 11, um, which we can debate if that's a real price or if there's going to be a, some pipe pressure. Um, but again, I just think that's interesting real business. Another one, you know, I think this is really interesting is there's a SPAC called Columbia CLBR. 
Um, we, we are long that full disclosure. Mm-hmm. Appreciate um, disclosure. CLBA. Columbia CLBR. CLBR. Yeah. And what's really interesting is this is kind of, uh, let's call it, they, they chose a target that's going on the anti-woke movement as they, they call it. Right. And so, you know, very pro-America. And I don't know if you ever looked at Black Rifle Coffee. That was a coffee company for veterans. Or I guess the more extreme version would be Rumble. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, setting political views aside, those companies have actually traded pretty reasonably for SPACs. Like Rumble is still, I see here, you know, it's down 6% today, but it's still above $10. And so these, you know, types of companies have been able to find kind of an an interesting investor base that, you know, some of the other SPACs haven't been able to. And so... But that may be independent of the fundamentals of the business. I don't know about Black Rifle Coffee, but Rumble, I mean, it's a, it's a network business and they're basically trying to go against YouTube. They're like, oh, we'll get Russell Brand to not be a leftist and we'll pay him to make videos on Rumble. It's a tough business model. That's all I'll say. R- regardless of you know my political views or Rumble, which is you know a little more right-leaning. Right. So, uh, But to your point, it's it's not even about the political views. It's about the pattern that there's this investor group that's willing to back kind of these sorts of entities. And so, you know, the name of the game in SPAC ARB is how do I find opportunities with upside risk without changing my downside parameters? And so you look at something like Columbia that has, you know, it's trading at about trust value. And so you can own this. If it gets that retail following, then it trades well before the deal vote, you make money. If it doesn't, you sell it current or redeem, you don't lose money. And so it's just really interesting that you could get this kind of asymmetric uh, skew. Now, I think they, in this case, they're, they're pricing this deal pretty reasonably. And, you know, I was flipping through their deal deck, pretty, pretty interesting. They've, they've actually been able to get a million subscribers onto their platform, a million users, I should say. Um, so again, it, it's just kind of interesting when you see these patterns of these couple, these types of deals have worked. Um, you know, maybe this one will too. And by the way, if it doesn't, you don't lose anything. Um, so I think that's, that one's a pretty uh, interesting setup. That's interesting. I want to say, I feel like your criteria are different from a long-term investor. You're looking for, you can hold it for a little bit and you'll get some appreciation. You'll get a little bump and yeah. Okay. People like rumble because you know, they're you know, right-wing investors who, who share that, uh, you know, political belief and you know, they may like the platform they want to support it, but it's, you'll be able to get out. You know what I'm saying? Well, rumble, Where, rumble if, if the business does not work in five years, you'll still be fine. Whereas someone who like rode the wave down will not. Sure. Listen, if, if you want to own any business for the long term, you have to really underwrite the fundamentals. And, yes. You know, R- Rumble, like we were saying, it's up, you know, 3% since it's from its $10 price. It peaked at 16. So a couple of people there made a bunch of money. And, and look, it, it bottomed out at six. So if you were tracking this thing and like the fundamentals and were buying it lower, then, then you've done okay too. Um, I'm just more, you know, so to take a step back, 100% agree. If you're going to be a medium or long term investor, you need to, you know, underwrite the business, the valuation, the fundamentals, get comfortable. Um, for me, it's, you know, finding these opportunities where I'm either buying something for yield or I'm buying something where, candidly, if you own Columbia right now, the yield isn't that interesting, but they're out there telling this really interesting story. And if they get enough interest for the stock to go from 1021 today to 11, then that, that's great. And, you know, they actually tell a good story. They have a good SPAC sponsor, a little early stage, um, which... As you know, and again, for me, I can't own any of these things post DSPAC, but if I can find these asymmetric uh, 
situations, it's, it's pretty interesting. Yes. And that you, what you're doing is a highly complex strategy that employs leverage that, uh, you know, needless to say, not suitable for the, for the average investors or most investors. Okay. So I'm looking at your, uh, from your, from your deck, you've got a chart that, that you made. And if I have your permission to put it on screen, we can, if I, if I don't, people will just have to see this in their heads sure. and it shows the, the liquidations. There's an immense amount of liquidations in December. Why in that yellow bar? Why were there so many liquidations in December 2022? Why did it go down in January? And why are they kind of on the on the move from January, February, March? So if you're familiar with the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed at the end of last year, one of the provisions in there was a 1% tax on stock buybacks. And for whatever reason, SPAC redemptions are considered stock buybacks. And what was unclear at the time, but has been clarified since, is does a liquidation count as <clears throat> does liquidation count as a buyback or not? And so you had a bunch of SPAC sponsors that were sitting there in December, already kind of licking their wounds that you know their risk capital is at risk, and saying like, wait a second, if I have a two hundred million dollar SPAC and I liquidate, and that's considered a buyback, I have to pay another two million dollars. And then there was all this debate of, well, could that come out of the trust account? And then you had SPAC investors saying, like, wait a second, like that's that's not what I signed up for. And if you read the trust agreement, some of them are very specific on tax that you can only remove franchise and income tax. Some are broader and say tax. And so there's a lot of uncertainty. And so if you had a SPAC that was going to liquidate in, let's say, within the first quarter, you knew that there wasn't enough time to announce a deal and get it closed. So you might as well liquidate. And so we saw a lot of these SPACs, like the SPAC trade in Q4 was to buy Delaware SPACs with a Q1 maturity because they were likely going to file for an early liquidation. And that's exactly what happened. And so you saw this huge spike. Funny enough, towards, I think on like December 26th or something, like very close in the year, we got some guidance from Treasury that a liquidation is not considered a buyback. But it still looks like a redemption is. And so the next thing that happened, and, and sorry, because this gets technical on a little bit. No, no, no. So the next thing that happened is when SPACs wanted an extension. So let's say you have a SPAC and your deadline was March 31st. You're allowed to file a proxy that says we want to extend for nine months to December 31st. But at that same time, anyone who's an investor in the SPAC has the right to redeem their shares. So again, we, we kind of come full circle on why this trust floor is so important. And so the question became like, well, who's on the hook for this potential excise tax? Because the way it's written now, that redemption event is technically a share buyback and that triggers a tax. And so some sponsor- It should be paid by the company, but there is no company. Well, it should be paid by this. Well, this was the argument. It should be paid oh. by the sponsor or by the trust. Yeah. And kind of interestingly, so you had a couple of sponsors that, didn't comment it at all, you know, left it kind of open-ended. And as part of this redemption process, there's two votes. There's, do you want to redeem your stock? Yes or no. And separately, are you going to vote to approve the extension? And, you know, at a time of uncertainty, investors kind of made their own certainty. And if you did not explicitly indemnify the trust account from the excise tax, then investors voted down your extension. And so what ended up happening is, you would see a press release come out from the sponsor that they're indemnifying the trust account against the excise tax, and then magically the extensions would be approved. So where we are right now is that the the market, if you will, is that um, 
is that sponsors have to cover the excise tax. Now, this is, again, we're, we're pretty technical now. This is an issue only for Delaware domiciled SPACs. If you are a Cayman domiciled SPAC, there is no tax, there's no excise tax. Um, you can actually argue there's a tax arbitrage in owning a Cayman SPAC because, again, this is getting sidetracked, but if you own a Cayman SPAC for over a year, it's long-term capital gains and they'll own treasuries underneath, which aren't being taxed. And so you are basically owning treasuries without paying taxes on well, paying a lower short term treasuries, whereas if you owned a, a six month treasury, you'd have to pay short term capital gains on it or, or, or you pay ordinary. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so you saw this huge surge, right? And the first was driven by fear, right? Sponsors knew they couldn't get a deal done. They're licking their wounds and they're like, I'm not getting taxed twice. And the the buyback tax was supposed to start January 1. So everyone was in a race to liquidate before year end then you, know, you still are in this environment where it's challenging to get deals done. And so you've seen kind of these liquidations continue, but you kind of had that pull forward of a lot of Delaware SPACs that should have liquidated in Q1, liquidated in Q4 instead. And now you're kind of, you know, we're still seeing, you know, elevated liquidations, I'd say at least, you know, relative to in boom times, right in 2020, there were no liquidations. Yeah. Um, I'm just pulling up right now, you know, we saw, Sorry, what's the difference between a liquidation and a termination? A termination is you've announced a deal with a target and then you call off the deal. Oh, okay. So it's like, yeah, backing out. And, and liquidation is people just, everyone gets their money back. It's over. Yep. Got it. Okay. So now I'm looking at another chart, which uh, you know we, we put up, which is the SPAC redemption rate. And in December, 2022, it was 98%, meaning for every $100 of SPAC money, when the deal happened, 98%, $98 went back to the investor, only $2 to the company. That seems pretty, I don't want to say messed up. I mean, but like, what's, what's going on there? And then also this chart only goes back to April, 2022. What was it like in the boom time of 2021? Zero. Really? Uh, well, think about it. If you're, if you're me, right. And I can redeem for $10 a share, let's just use round numbers. And the stock's trading at 11, I'm never going to redeem. Right. I'm just yeah. going to sell it in the open market and move on. Um, and that's that's the ideal. It's, you know, the flywheel is working. I guys like me are doing well. Companies are getting more money to the SPAC as a product serves a function. Um, so, you know, what happened is just people have no faith in these deals. Again, you had a combination of, you know, deals that were probably not great. The negative perception out there for SPACs, challenging capital markets environment broadly. And so the safest thing was just to, to get your money back. And the comps, uh, if there was a fintech company that was went to market at a certain valuation at ten dollars of stock, you know, the valuation for the entire company, and then, uh, you know, Square, since the deal was announced, was down sixty percent. The stock Square or PayPal or J.P. Morgan or something, some sort of financial stock, and suddenly that's worth a lot less. Uh, so really, the, everyone knows the stock should be trading at six dollars, but there's a ten dollar floor. Yeah, so it, it kind of comes back to, you know, I call SPACs, you know, a bull market product and people think like, oh, because you're just talking about spec in general. It's like, no, I like that if it takes six months for a deal to close that between announcement and closing, in theory, I've accreted value, right? I'm making money, I'm getting closer, I'm rolling forward estimates. You know, in December, like last year, the market and spec got tagged. And so to your point, we saw just tremendous amount of value destruction, I don't say destruction, but let's call it valuation compression 
without these deals getting reset. Even something, again, we've been talking about Rock Energy, ROC, and, and I tweeted about these specific numbers. I don't have them at my fingertips. If you just look at the comps they disclose in their deal deck, they're all down, around, I want to say about 40%. And so seeing this trading at $6, it's not unreasonable because that's just where the market is. It has nothing to do with the performance of the target. It just has to do that. Hey, there's your, your comps. Your comps are down, you know, 40%. And so therefore you should be down 40%. Yeah, that makes sense. So this chart only goes up to March 2023 when the SPAC redemption rate was 96%. Now that we're in a, let's call it a pseudo bull market in stocks and particularly technology stocks, AI stocks, uh, what is the redemption rate looking like now? By the way, just, so just to answer your question from earlier, in, in the first quarter of 2021, the redemption rate was 12%. Okay. Uh, you know, we're still so seeing- So when you said 0%, you were close. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're still seeing really elevated, um, really elevated redemption rates. And, you know, don't get me wrong, June is looking better because we saw one deal, but June was, again, we're two weeks in, halfway through, it was 80%. Uh, remember, yes, we're in a pseudo bull market, but the deals that are closing now were announced six months ago, arguably during one of the most challenging times. And so, you know, the I think the better companies around that could have been patient were patient. And so I'd rather, you know, I think the question you just asked, we'll have to touch on the next time we speak to say, like, were there good deals that were done now? Because there's an excitement, there's more investor willingness to, you know, put up capital to take on more risk, et cetera. But, you know, we're definitely not seeing it yet. And, you know, listen, if you were doing deals with 95% redemptions and no pipe, it's probably a bad deal. Because if you think about, if you're making the pitch to a target why you should merge with a SPAC, there's really two re there's three main reasons, but two of them go together. One is being public, but it's being public and raising capital. Most of these companies don't want to be public and not raise capital. And the other is getting expertise from the manager team of the SPAC, right? If you're an energy SPAC and you're you know merging with an energy target and you as the board and management of the energy spec of all these connections and you know knowledge and you can really create value like that makes perfect sense right it's you know when blackstone buys an asset is because they have this expertise to create value and so you kind of want to have that set up but in a lot of these scenarios when you're just merging this again i'll pick on biotech you've seen a lot of biotech deals where the spac clearly has no biotech background so they're relying on one the target and two whoever is kind of making the introduction and three, they're not bringing any capital because you know I've, there's been two big pipes and that's really it. Um, then, then what are you doing? You're just bringing dilution. And even if you forfeit some of your sponsor shares, you know you're bringing on dilution. You're not adding human capital. You're not adding financial capital. So it kind of defeats the purpose. And so the more of those you see, the harder it's going to be to convince a a, tar a, a quality target like merge with the SPAC. But if you're able to show like Listen, I don't think we're ever going back to 12%. If you're able to show like, listen, we're going to get 60% redemption. So in a $200 SPAC, we'll raise $80 million. We can push back on some of these banker fees or pay them at least in equity tied to an earn out. Make, you know, some of the banks and some of the bankers now are willing to do this to get give them some skin in the game too. And by the way, like the CEO of our SPAC has 20 years of experience in this industry and we can help you like, you're doing X, Y, and Z, and we think we can add these three things to create value. Now it's a much more synergistic combination, and it just makes sense. Like I think. I'll, so who becomes the CEO if you have a CEO of a SPAC merging with a company who has a CEO? 
the company. Usually okay. the, the SPAC CEO becomes chairman of the board. Got it. Okay. And so, Louis, that that theory of, oh, I have all this experience, I'm going to help you out, that can work. And I'm not saying it doesn't. But like, let's say when someone goes on Shark Tank and they have a certain business and, you know, Kevin O'Leary says, oh, I can help you because I have all this experience. Oftentimes he's right, but it's because he has this huge brand and he can you know, post about it on Twitter and put people in touch with people. But it's not like Kevin O'Leary knows more about the business than the, the, the founder of the business, you know? And it's the same, 100%. It's the same with the SPAC. Like Blackstone can put, you know, if I have a company, they can put me in touch with people and maybe they have more experience. But, you know, I mean, the, the, the 24-year-old analysts who are hired by Blackstone to do all the work, like, what do they know, you know? Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll state it a little differently because you yeah. got me there. What is the value creation playbook and how does the SPAC help pursue that initiative, right? Because if you're... There's a price for financial capital and there's a price for strategic capital, right? Like we see consultants getting paid all the time. Um, we see bankers help raise money all the time. And so, you know, if you want to get your true sponsor economics, I think you need to do both or you need to rethink the, the economics. If the answers from a sponsor is going to be like, listen, I know nothing about your business. I don't want to be involved, but, you know, you seem to be a smart guy. I like what you're doing. So, you know, I'll merge with you. I think the response to them is going to be like, okay, well, I'm going to tie how much of your, how many of your founders you keep to how much money stays in the trust. Mm. Right? I just think conceptually you want alignment. When yeah, people yeah. complain about SPACs, they bring examples like, you know, Chamath did his SPAC deal and traded up to $20 and he, you know, he, he sold and moved on to the next one. Now in fairness, which one, which one, I mean, there's so many. Exactly. Now yeah, in fairness, yeah. if, if you own, if you own something and it doubles, you Virtual probably put chips off the table. But, um, you know, point being, if you kind of, you have to improve the merits of the product. And so I think alignment is a, is pretty important. That's a good point. Uh, so who would you say are sponsors who you have the most respect for, where they're a blue chip name and when their name is attached to something, it means something to you. And then who are people who maybe their reputation has, uh, you know, fallen a little bit? Listen, I still think, you know, Gore's, for instance, has been just really active in this space and probably someone you want to bet with. And, you know, if you think about your top private equity firms, like let's talk about KKR, KKR liquidated their vehicle, right? And yet if they brought another one, I think that would be pretty interesting because by liquidating their vehicle, they chose to lose their risk capital at the cost of protecting their reputation. And I their think, honor, which I respect. Right. And so, look, I, you know, I was surprised and, you know, if you own their warrants, you were pissed off because you were zeroed and you probably thought like I'm betting with KKR. That's great. But, you know, I think it's guys like that that are able to be a little more thoughtful. You know, if KKR comes back and announces a deal, you're going to remember this deal's probably okay because they're sophisticated investors and they chose to kind of forego the last one. You know, I think Aries is out there, just raise a second vehicle. Um, and so I, I think it's these, again, my view is, do you have access to your own deal flow and do you have access to capital? And so it's, it's understanding that, and you know, we know the big names, right? We know the Gores, we know the Aries, um, we know the Churchills, but it could also be a two billion dollar middle market fund that, you know, for a living they they look for deals and they have LP money. And again, that doesn't mean they'll do a deal, you know, but like there's a SPAC out there. Um, it's called by a middle market private equity firm that focuses on financials called Corsair. And I happen to know those guys. I have a lot of respect for those guys. 
I believe if they do a deal, it'll be a good deal. And if they can't find a deal that will really work for the market, then they're not going to force one through. And so it's kind of interesting when you think about it's the guys that can afford to lose the risk capital and protect their reputation that over time you want to bet with. But if it's a sample size of one, you know that there's risk that they liquidate. Whereas there could be some guys that, you know, maybe they shouldn't have a SPAC. Maybe they can't afford to lose the risk capital. They will force something done. But it could be one of these deals that goes to a dollar kind of as soon as it closes. And you know, it's hard to kind of, even if you're playing something like the Warrens, which in theory is just upside, if you bought the units, you know, it's hard to see how you're going to make a lot of money. Um, so again, I would say the the big things are, you know, how do you source a deal and how do you finance a deal? Got it. And then what are some of the ones where you don't have as high of a regard for them? I mean, again, it's, it's hard for me to get comfortable with some of the ones that are doing China deals just because, you know, I want to be careful that that comment's not taken out of context, but future perhaps like, for example, if the CEO uh, is uh, declared by China as a financial criminal and he's not allowed to, with to, to, for Chinese banks to lend to him. And yet he takes a plane ride to America and he suddenly has a SPAC. If so, a sponsor does a deal with him, maybe that raises some questions. That's what you're well, saying. I'll simplify it even more. Faraday Future, look it up. You know, a lot of these a lot of these sponsors in their prospectus, they'll say, this is where we're gonna focus on a deal to do this. And, and it's not binding or anything, but you have to read that and say like, I think investors would get comfortable owning that exposure. And I just, if you came out here now and said, we want to do a Chinese biotech deal. Like that could be cool. And you may actually be able to find like a really interesting opportunity. I just don't see investors getting comfortable with that today, but like, that could change in three months. And so it's hard to say, all right. So that, so I look at that and say like, there's probably no chance that you trade above trust. Your warrants probably get really little value. So I don't know. Right. That, that, that's just harder. Um, there are certain, you know, so that when I look at that, when I look at certain teams and similar thing, right? Like if you're launching and your your team is kind of all over the place and you're a generalist, like again, thus far that hasn't gotten you know too much love in the market. But you know, for me, broadly speaking, it's I start off with the yield, right? If I mm-hmm. buy your stock, what's the yield? Because if I can make enough money on the yield, I don't need the upside optionality. I love it. Don't get me wrong. Like who wouldn't? But you know, for me, if, if I'm choosing between KKR and I'm yielding 4%, which by the way is below financing costs, or a sponsor that you know is doing the China biotech that I don't think we will receive, but it's yielding eight, I'm gonna own the latter all day because that's still a risk-free return to me. And so that's, you know, again, this is a really interesting conversation because I think it changes depending on where we are in the cycle. If we're in an environment where a deal getting announced could send the warrants to two bucks, sure, like now let's talk about that because in that environment, you probably want to diversify a portfolio of here's the yield only, but here's a little more kind of speculative growth with downside protection. And, and it really becomes a, a more interesting portfolio construction discussion. Whereas right now, you know, that's not really happening. And so it's just more about the yield. So I, I joke around, I've become like a glorified fixed income trader. It's, it's a little boring on some days, but you know, you have to trade the market you have and not the market you want. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, 
and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com sign up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. That is a great advice that I think applies to, to more than just SPACs. So what were SPACs yielding, let's say, when you launched the fund in December 2021, when risk, uh, risk-free interest rates were at zero? And then what are they yielding now, now that risk-free rates are at 5%? And how has the spread changed? Because let's talk fixed income, you know? Sure. I mean, listen, they were, you know, a lot of them were in the, the 2 3% range, right? And so when I used to underwrite SPACs, I wouldn't even talk about the interest income. I would talk about, look, if we we're going to try to buy these units at 990, let's just, you know, let's assume a, a unit had uh, came with half a warrant. Mm-hmm. We're going to buy these units at 990. In one year, we're going to redeem for 10. That's 1%. So it's, it's like a zero coupon bond. Yeah. If everything goes wrong, we make 1%. If they do a deal at the time, the average warrant for a closed deal was a dollar. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier that it was like, what do we say? Uh, 50 cents now, but it was a dollar. And so you would say that that half of a warrant is therefore worth 50 cents. So now I have a, a 6% all in return, right? 1% from um, that trust accretion and then 5% from the warrant. My financing cost was super low at the time. So, you know, I, I didn't remember what it was to be, to be candid. Um, close to zero. Close to zero. I mean, you know, most back funds are overnight rates plus. So let's just say it was 2%, right? So I would say that my target is to make 6% and worst case, make one and finance at two. And so if I carry, you're at a, you had a carry trade going on. Right. And if you think about it, if that's your strategy, the sponsor quality actually matters, right? Because you need the sponsor that's going to get the deal done. Otherwise you're going to have a lot of ones instead of a lot of sixes. And so, you know, back then I would go through like, who's the underwriter, who's the sponsor, what have they done before? You know, a lot of work trying to understand the industries, what makes sense. And it's funny because none of that matters anymore, right? Because or, if, you, if you redeem, you're still getting the, uh, the, the yield. So what are the yields now? Well, it's not that, right? It's that in the example I just gave you, you know, five of the six percentage points of your return came from the warrant. Mm-hmm. And so how do you make sure the warrant has value? You have to have confidence that they do a deal and do a good deal that's well received. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, the yields are closer to 6%. But what's really interesting is that's 6% without the warrant, right? Because now money market rates are five. So you're getting something like 5% from the money market rates and um, and 1% from that trust accretion. And then there's some of these where sponsors make contributions also. We'll, we'll, we'll table that for now. Um, but what's really interesting now is you're getting, if you can get into an IPO at at trust value, right? So let's let's go back to Aries. So at Aries, the IPO was $10 and there was 10, 10 in trust. And I mentioned that, you know, my forecast for, you know, the, the terminal value, if you will, of where Aries is going to be in 10 months was $11 and 11 cents. Just so, based on interest rates. Right. 
current interest, not, not modeling any increases or cuts. Um, yeah. So, so excluding the value of the warrant, I'm going to make 5.8% a year. Like that's my start. And now if, you know, you know, Aries is, I think, a, a special, uh, you know, tier one and they have a, I'm sorry, so they have a deal right now um, in market where they've announced it, it hasn't closed yet. And it's trading at, I want to say it's 70 cents. Yep, it's trading at 70 cents. And so if I come back and say like, okay, I think I'm going to get, I think this will trade at 70 cents too. So half a warrant is three and a half. So, you know, now I'm getting something like if they take the full duration of time, I'm getting something like a 7% return. Like that to me with no risk in this environment is, is pretty excellent. Got it. But did, didn't you note in your investor letter that have have a SPAC spreads, which I, you could define for us, have actually narrowed somewhat? Yeah, no, it, it's true. So like for me, one of the things I look at the most are here's what SPAC yields are and here's what my financing cost is, right? Because as those numbers widen out, that's really great for me. And as those narrow, then it's not so great. And so we saw you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, we saw kind of these accelerated liquidations happening in Q4. And that really, you know, that was very fruitful. We saw, because if you think about it, if you have a SPAC that's trading below trust and now you fast forward the redemption deadline, that's Early a payment, yeah. yield. Exactly, that's accretive to yield. And so then we kind of saw all of, the, if you think about just basic supply and demand, we saw a lot of supply just fall out of this market with liquidations. And so as a result, you've seen kind of tighter yields. Um, I would say, you know, we're probably 100 points wider at the max. So we're still at six. Financing rates are still at five and change. But, you know, like everything else, right? Embedded in the six, you've got a lot of SPACs that have negative yields, right? SPACs like, again, picking on Donald Trump's back, DWAC, you know, DWAC's trading at, you know, over 12 bucks with under $11 in trust. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, that's, Definitely not the majority, but that's in the sample size. And so, you know, it's it's required by people in my shoes to try to find the better opportunities. And the better opportunities could be because we're reading all the filings and seeing like that example where all of a sudden the SPAC is investing in an interest-bearing account before they weren't. Or maybe there's an issue where the trust value ends up being a bit different than people estimated. And so what we've seen in we've seen a couple of cases where there was a redemption event and um, between the time where the, re the meeting was held for redemption and the payout, let's say it's 10 days, there was interest, the interest earned there. It's unclear who gets that interest. And in a few instances, that interest was ascribed to the remaining trust. So like I'll, you know, so you can kind of do the, the math on how if 80% of your trust redeems, but I'm getting 10 days of interest on that 80%, and allocating it to the 10, you can see a big step up in the trust. Um, another thing we're seeing right now is these game theory extensions because nothing should be easy. Yeah, what does that mean? It means that a sponsor says, we want to extend the life of our vehicle and we are going to make a financial contribution to do it. That financial contribution will be the lower of $200,000 a month and four cents. And so you may look at that. So I'll look at something like that and I'll say, okay, four cents times 12, 48 cents, just under 5%. So if we, if I'm getting that full monthly, I'm getting just under 5%, plus you're still invested, let's pretend you're Cayman and you're earning 5%, no taxes. So now I'm just under 10%.
that's a home run. If I can own something at that rate, we got risk-free paper, 10% is hard to come by. Uh, and so you look at some of those, but the flip side is if everyone has that view and now everyone stays in, that cap of $200,000 a month may come in and now I'm getting half a cent a month. And so, you know, there's some of those where you're trying to like game it and look at how it's been trading and whatnot, but there's been, you know, a couple of opportunities like that where we've been able to find extra yield. Wow, that's really interesting. And yet just shows that this is, you know, the big leagues and very, very complex. Uh, you have to read doc get documents that are, yeah, the, the lesser of four cents or two or, or the quotient of 45 days divided by blah, blah, blah. It's, it's you know, it's like- When you look at all the nuance, you have to either, there's kind of the sweet spot. If you're doing it as an individual and you're putting even say, you know, $10,000 to work, right? And you're playing for- 1% of alpha, that's a hundred bucks. It's probably not worth your time to sit there and, you know, read all the filings. If you are a, you know, multi-billion dollar fund, you know, you probably can't put enough money to work in some of this stuff. Yeah. It's so it's not worth your time, right? Like when I was at Citadel, we didn't even look at small cap stocks, right? It was even mid cap stocks were tough. Like I was focused on just large caps because you needed that liquidity. And so it kind of creates like a, a nice niche size for guys like me and, and maybe even a little bigger, um, you know, to look at some of the stuff and take advantage because you can't be too big. You can't be too small. Um, definitely some interesting stuff on the back end with uh, the pipes and whatnot, which, you know, if you want to chat out, I'm happy to, but that's a whole separate topic. But there's, uh, you know, for me, my goal has been broadly to be a capital provider to SPACs at kind of all stages in their life. And, but also being mindful of the cycle. Because if you get the cycle wrong, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. Where do you think we are in this cycle, with the SPAC cycle, but the economic cycle? Just as you know, we, we reach a close, I definitely you know, would love to talk ab ab about uh, the, the pipe, pipe cycle that you're talking about. But just, yeah, where, where do you think we are with this cycle? I mean, do you think we're in a new bull market, as some people say, for stocks? And therefore, if we are, a new bull market in SPACs is right around the corner, right? I don't think so. Disclaimer, I am not... You know, I'm not the biggest macro guy. I'm not an economist. Just from a more common sense perspective, we went from zero rates to, you know, 500 basis points. And I think that takes time to flow through the system. And, you know, at, at the Morgan Stanley Financials Conference was yesterday and the bank commentary candidly wasn't very good. And, you know, I think given everything happened with First Republic and Civ B, you know, if banks pull back on lending, that has real economic consequences. And so I think the AI stuff is really interesting. I think that, you know, we, we tend to get ahead of ourselves, no different than EV, no different from way ahead of ourselves. Right. And listen, let's go back to the, the dot com boom. And I was pretty young for this, but I think we can all agree that the Internet's real and it's here to stay. But, you know, minus Amazon and, you know, Microsoft, like how many of the companies from back then are still here? So I think it's, you know, it's great. I think whatever comes out of this AI bull, bull market bull run is going to be, you know, good for society. But, you know, when I just look at the core macro data, when you look at what Costco is saying, what you look at, uh, you know, Dollar General or Dollar, Dollar General is saying, you know, the commentary is pretty bad. And listen, I don't wish a recession because that has, you know, real consequences on real people. But it's hard for me to get overly excited right now and i'd love to listen life is more fun when you're bullish yeah you know, I, I don't i haven't had as much fun you know when we were in q4 of 2020 and you know i was playing SPAC warrants and you know they would be up 
Quantumscape went to 120. Sorry? Quantumscape went to 120. Yeah, you know, for me, like, I've never had more fun. I was doing well financially. My friends were doing well financially. It was the only time in my life I wasn't afraid to give a stock tip because I always say if you if you make someone a dollar and then lose them a penny, you feel miserable. Yeah. Um, so listen, it's much more fun to be in bubble times, but you know, I'm also just a cautious person. Maybe that's why I do spec arbitrage and I'm highly focused on the downside. But I would definitely, I think the economic data right now is not so great, and I would love to see that um, improve a bit. And you know, you, you talk about AI and people talk about the S&P, which is, you know, Apple and Microsoft, but, you know, you look at the Russell, you look at some other places, you look at commodities, you know, they are telling a, a different story. So I'm going to continue to be cautious and listen, nothing would make me happier than one of the SPACs I own to run up to 15, 20 bucks before the deal closes and create that opportunity like we saw a couple of years back. Right. But it sounds like SPACs may uh, continue to be just bonds to, to you for, for a, a good while for now, based on what you're saying. So Lewis, my final question is, you said the SPAC spreads are narrowing, the spread between your financing costs to, to borrow and lever, leverage up the trade versus how much the, the SPACs are yielding. You are in good company. Banks, their spread has narrowed considerably, particularly uh, the small banks where their deposit costs used to be zero, now they're 3%. They can make loans at 7%, but it's very hard to make them. So you know they sometimes make loans at 6%. So their, their net interest margins have narrowed. And you know a lot of bank stocks are in trouble. I mean, you just have to look at the chart. You said you so I don't know if you were a bank analyst, but you used to be a payments analyst. So kind of related. What is your outlook on, let's just say, you know, regional banks? Have you how much attention are you paying to those? Well, so I, I want to clarify one thing, which is yes, SPAC yields have narrowed. But remember, all SPACs are kind of the same, right? There's nuances in Cayman versus Delaware. But if I can find a SPAC that's yielding 8% versus the other SPAC yielding 5 it's not like I'm taking credit risk, right? And so, you know, while yes, the, the numbers I quoted you for the SPAC universe have tightened, I still think there's plenty of opportunity. You just have to be an active participant versus buying the index, which I don't even think there's an index to buy. Um, going to your question on regional banks. So I, I was never a bank analyst, um, full disclosure, but I just always felt that banks are really hard investments. They're, they're trading stocks. And the reason I say that is, you know, if you think about where we've gone from a macro standpoint, you had low rates where everyone was worried about, oh, banks are never going to make money. Then rates start going up and, you know, you have deposit beta concerns, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what you just mentioned, how much you have to pay your savings account holders relative to what you make. And so now you're concerned and rates move up and then something breaks. And then the regulators come in and they say, well, now we need to regulate. And like, so, so when do you make money? Like, like I just, so if you look at a chart right now of the KRE, the regional bank index, we're at 45 bucks. I mean, we're at 45 we, bucks already. Wow. That's, that's a big rally. I, it was like 44, but we were at, we were at $44 in 2015. So sure. I'm ignoring dividends in this analysis, but we've basically been sitting flat for eight years. Like that's just, that's terrible. Right. Like, and so you know, sure, like if you bought banks and I'm looking at the chart now, you kind of have to buy banks at the bottom, you know, at the trough of 2020 to really make money and or you have to trade them all, right? Like you, you know, banks were trading, the KRE was trading 60, 70 bucks. And so sure, you trade them around. But if you're thinking about regional banks as a whole, I just think it's so difficult to say, like, I'm just going to own banks because I just, again, for me, and maybe I'm just not smart enough, I don't know what the right environment is for banks to work. 
And in that environment, whatever you come up with, is there something that works better? And so that, that's just always been my, my issue. And then if you look at like, if you think, well, banks really make money off of credit and now the private equity guys are taking over private credit because of some of the other regulations on banks. And, you know, it's just, it's hard. Yeah. You don't get attracted by the by, by, you know, price to book. You do some price to book with the the trust relative thing. I mean, a bank stock trades at twenty percent of price to book. That doesn't interest you because the book's made up. Well, why? If if we have to go through the why, but yeah. you know, as, as you know, if you buy a stock because it's cheap, it's not necessarily going to go up, right? You know, correct. In my world, you know, uh, I used to cover the asset managers, and Franklin Templeton was always the cheapest one, and you know, it hasn't moved. So if you've, you know, if you've, I'm looking at the, the chart right now, um, Franklin Templeton on June 30, 2010 was 28.73. And today it's 27. So again, it's, it's paid out dividends. I'm ignoring dividends. I realize that. But if you just bought this because it's cheap, then you've sat there for 13 years and haven't made money. Um, or, but if you bought Blackstone, which, you know, at times people thought was expensive, but had, you know, the right structural, trend, you know, even now that it sold off a lot from the peak, if you were to go back to, let's just say, you know, the end of 2018, I mean, the stock's tripled. So I just, you know, for banks, I don't see what the structural trends are. When I think banks, regional banks, especially are trading stocks, it's easier to say like, you know, the big banks are just consolidating share because, you know, if you're, so hedge funds, right, there's not so many banking choices. And I, you know, was banking with First Republic. Uh, when all this went down and I sat there saying like, okay, even after everything was guaranteed, you know, there's business interruption risk. Like why don't I just move to some of the bigger banks? Right. Yep. And I think a lot of small businesses probably have that feeling. And I know that there's limits on deposits and whatnot, but you know, it just feels like the setup isn't there. And I saw some data that showed we have in the United States more banks per capita than like anywhere else in the world. And so you kind of have this question of, do we need all these banks? And if these banks were to consolidate, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And yeah, you know, I just have a lot more questions than, than answers. So I, there I are more of, banks than there are SPACs. No doubt about that, especially now. I mean, we had like 700 SPACs at one point, and that number has come uh, way down. When, when we spoke last, there were over 500 SPACs looking for targets, and now we're under 200. So we're definitely there, localizing. Yeah. Are there any banks or bank-like companies? I guess it's kind of either or. But... Uh, that have spacked or have plans to be spacked, not as a sponsor, but literally the company. Like if First Republic, or no, I'm just gonna, you know, if if um, uh, Zion Bank mer was a private company that merged, did a reverse merger with a spac. Got it. We saw a cannabis bank come out through a spac. <laughs> How did that um, end up? Uh, I'm without looking at it, I'm sure not great because cannabis, you know, as, as you may know, I'm on the board of a cannabis payments company and the entire sector has been kind of slaughtered. Um, okay, so can you explain, Lewis, can you explain that to me? I just know the MSOS is the ticker uh, ETF. So I'll attract that. I'm a total, you know, amateur. I don't know anything about the fundamentals. That's gone from like 35 to five. So total annihilation. What is going on? It's just the legislation to legalize it didn't happen federally? What's going on? Well, so the, there's a lot going on. Um, so for the dispensaries, you know, one, you've just seen macro weakness, um, just broad macro, right? So that, that's obviously bad. Two, you've seen 
um, pressure on actual cannabis, whether it's regulation, whether it's the price of plants. So I joke around that, you know, I have exposure to the one industry that's been deflationary, even as inflation has been ripping, but, uh, you know, such is life. And then, you know, you have an industry that's been really relying on, you know, private capital markets. And as we know from this conversation, that market's been really challenged too. You know, people talk a lot about safe banking. And look, I, I hope safe passes if, if people think it'll help dispensaries. What I tell people, and this is true, and, I, and unfortunately, I have to sit in both of these, there's more banks willing to bank cannabis than willing to bank hedge funds, um, which, which I don't think people truly realize. Is that really true? Was, it, was that true five years ago? I... That I don't know, but I can tell you because I went through the exercise when the First Republic started having its issues before the JPM takeover. I was reaching out to people to see you know, where I could potentially move my business. And I got five or seven names. And I know that there's, you know, a much longer list of banks willing to bank cannabis. Um, and But the big issue is 280E. So if you're a dispensary, you pay taxes on your revenue, income taxes. You're, you don't get kind of standard expense deductions that any business would. And so you're really kind of straining cash. And, you know, a lot of these companies have deferred their taxes. But, you know, at some point, the, you know, you have to deal with that. And just listen, legalization is good. More states coming online is good, but it's, um, you know, the government hasn't been helping. And I think one of the challenges for the industry is that cannabis is, you know, if you look at kind of um, sell side forecasts, it's estimated to be a $30 billion market by the end of 2030. A $30 billion market only matters to the people in the market, right? You think about GDP, you think about retail sales, like we're talking trillions of dollars. It's not going to be the S&P 500. Right. And so I actually think politicians are better off talking about cannabis than actually doing anything. I hope I'm wrong. I want to see them do something, but it just feels like if you actually get the laws changed, the impact may, you know, again, if you're thinking the impact on a national level is probably not going to be as great as if you can get that emotional rally over changing cannabis and fixing something that's, you know, silly. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Well, Lewis, we, we've run long. Thanks for, uh, you know, doing, doing this, doing the long episode. It's been good to hear your expertise. Just fi final question, you know, cause your expertise on SPACs to put it mildly, not a lot of people, but not a lot of investors have it. Like you're in a pretty narrow sector. How many Lewis Camis are there who, you know, pretty much their full-time job is, is doing SPAC investing and not just SPAC investing, but SPAC arbitrage. How many people do what you do? I mean, it's a small community. You know, it, it's... Do you all know each other? Not particularly. You know, it's funny. I was mentioning this to a broker recently. So when I was covering financials and fintech, there would be, you know, every two weeks, some, some firm would bring out their analysts and host a dinner and everyone would trade ideas. And, you know, it's just not like that in, in arbitrage. But at the same time, when you pull up, you know, you pull up a holders list and you see kind of the same names. You see Hudson Bay, you see Saba, you see Adelaide, oh, yeah, yeah. you see Magnetary, you see Polar. Like, there's a lot of names in here. And, you know, a lot of the multi-managers like Citadel and Millennium have teams doing it. But, you know, a lot of those larger firms, maybe their, you know, converts team will also do it. And so they have the flexibility to go back and forth. Um, but look, like when I'm, I invested in a SPAC last week, that's a $10 million SPAC. Right. And I want to stay below 5% to avoid filing. And so that's $500,000. If you're one of these big boy funds, like, 
doesn't move the needle. Millennium, you're not going to do that. And so, you know, there's some opportunity there. And so as the market kind of recalibrates to the size, I think the opportunity set is interesting because there's just fewer people that can hunt there. But, you know, there is probably, I'm going to say there's 50 SPAC dedicated funds out there. That's just, wow. my, just, just my guess. I, that sounds large, but it actually is tiny if you think about how many funds there are. Well, uh, Lewis, great to get you on. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Of course, you are uh, from RLH Capital. And on Twitter, you are at, at Val with Catalyst. And you post just the facts. No, you know, narrative this, Fed's going to do that. Total opposite of my world. Just the facts. I love it. So people, you know, if they're interested in, in SPACs, yeah, they should check it, it out. It's where if I even publish a recommendation, I'll tell you what I read about something. But Yeah, I'll no, not, not a recommendation, just like an observation. Yeah, yeah. Right. For sure. All right. Thanks again. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.